Hello and welcome to another edition of Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things, my irregular podcast where I talk to amazing people who, who, who through what they do, change who they are or change the world in some way or their world in some way. And this next conversation is amazing. And it was recorded before the murder of George Floyd. Um, but we touch on issues. No, we don't touch on issues. We talk about issues of equality and racism in the States. And Ashton is a pioneer, a campaigner. Um, she's active in so, so many ways and is just unbelievably articulate. She's also a bartender. I met her through um, a project I was working on where she uh, just blew me away with what she did. And I'm, I'm going to say no more. Um, it was recorded before George Floyd's murder, as I say, but its, its resonance will go on for a lot longer. I hope you enjoy it. I'll talk to you again afterwards. Amazing. Okay, so I'm sat in, um, I'm sat in Leicestershire in the UK and I'm on Zoom and I'm talking to one of the most, um, I'm going to say one of the most, well, the most hardworking, creative and inspiring bartenders I've ever worked with. And that's only a very small part of her life. So I'm sat here with Ashton Berry. Ashton is in New Orleans or New Orleans. How do you pronounce it? New Orleans. Yeah. Well, I went there, I got told off for saying it wrong all the time. Yeah, well, most people don't pronounce the whole New Orleans. It's like a little bit of, it's drawn out a little bit more, but it's totally fine. New Orleans. It kind of slurs, doesn't it? Which I think is appropriate. Yeah. yeah. So Ashton, uh, tell me about yourself. Um. Well, I have been in the industry for almost pretty much um, off and on. I am originally grew up in, on the South Side of Chicago and in Memphis, Tennessee. And I, you know, I thought that I had this dream that I was going to be this kind of really business mogul um, and serial entrepreneur, which I guess in some ways I am. Um, and I just found that I really couldn't take the corporate world and ended up um, in the beverage scene as someone who decided that, you know, honestly, this is what I enjoy. This is what I'm passionate about and kind of just went full force then. And I started off as a sommelier, actually. Most people don't know that. Um, know that. And kind of then transitioned to bartending, looking for more kind of creativity and room to be able to do different things. Um, and so, yeah, I'm an avid reader. Uh, anybody who follows me on Instagram or knows me in real life knows that I try to read a book a week. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm a curious person and I'm someone who truly believes that like all parts of ourselves intersect. And so I try to show up as a full person in every space that I am. That's amazing. And there's, that's loads a good to there's loads to go back to there. So I'll, I'll do that in a minute. But just quickly, what, what, what book, what's the most, what's the, what book have you read recently that you've loved the most? So people are so annoyed by this because I've been talking about it a ton. There's a book called How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Barrett. And it, um, it's a little scientific, but I tell everybody it's such a great book for thinking how your brain um, concepts. Um, and also, 
concepts impact the way that we respond to things, how we emote, engage with people, the biases we hold, and you know, biases are always negative. Um, so yeah, I, that's probably my, that's the book that I'm finishing and reading that book in tandem with other things because really dense. So I might read a chapter and I might need to sit with it for a minute yeah. and then come back to it. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've got that. I've got a couple on the go at the moment. Um, I'm reading one called The Overstory, which is really, really good, actually. It's, about, it's a, um American author. It's about trees, which sounds not interesting, but it's super, super interesting. Love mm. it. Very long, kind of a thousand. Well, I think it's long because it's on Kindle, but I've been reading it for weeks and I'm only on 15%. So I think it's pretty, it's pretty you're long. Like, you're like, it's pretty long. Yeah, it's um, good. So, have so, you read the book, How to Do Nothing? No. I, don't, I feel like I didn't read it. You should read it. It's really interesting. And she talks a lot about um, basically local biological landscapes and our relationship to them um, mm -hmm. and how important it is for us to be present and, wow. and also be able to look and see and remember what the land used to be like before development um, and how that should end the way. How to do nothing. How to do nothing. It is really, really good. It really breaks down our relationship to production and how we see the world. Um, and while many of us uh, don't take time to stop and notice the, um, you know, the biological ecosystem we live in. Because even if you live in a place that has houses and everything, you still are living in a space that has animals, that has the, and so we should consider that. Amazing, and that's Jenny O'Dell. Mm-hmm. Right, mm -hmm. that's being ordered. I'm gonna get that, thank you. Thank you so much. You're very so, welcome. Chicago is a long, long way from New Orleans. It is. Well, not really. Not well, really. I don't mean in miles. I mean in temperature. Mm -hmm. Maybe not in culture, actually. Maybe there is a stronger link in culture than people there would There is. Say. Yeah, there is. I would say in temperature, I would say definitely a historical kind of trail when you start talking about migration in the United States, specifically um, black families in the United States who moved from the South, so New Orleans, Mississippi, uh, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, up into the North and the places that they ended up. And uh, for many people who were in this kind of corridor, there, there's always been, and I, I don't have any historical knowledge, but there's been a long, um, relationship between Chicago and New Orleans, Chicagoans moving to New Orleans, New Orleans moving to Chicago, um, which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And there's actually quite a few people who live in New Orleans from Chicago and vice versa. That's amazing. And that migration, which is a, a known thing, that, 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 that movement north, was that spurred by racism? Was it spurred by the need to, to work? Was it, what, what, was, what, what, what drove that? So, you know, it's called, I mean, people go back and forth about whether it should be called the Great Migration because it happened over decades and there's two main pushes. But um, one of them is that the Industrial Revolution happens right as the Civil War is kind of like coming to, right 
in the middle of the Civil War as that's happening, so is the Industrial Revolution. The Civil War ends and their um, people begin to, urbanization begins to happen, right? So you just, not only do you get people moving north, you get a lot of people moving into cities, right? And we, um, this is when we really start to begin as a country in America, get the difference between rural areas and cities. Um, and cities become much more diverse through due to this migration. And much of the migration from the South is due to people trying to get access to jobs, but also because of the onset of black codes, which would become Jim Crow laws. Um, and so people trying to escape the structural racism and also targeting, um, direct targeting of them by going into cities that where they would have more access to be able to have financial stability and be able to have access to things um, that they weren't necessarily going to get in these small rural towns where they didn't have political, um, they didn't have any political footing or say so in the process. That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> you visit America now and you can still see the racism. It's, it's there, right? You can see, yeah. it, you, can you can hear uh, it. Yeah, it's very much there. But it's, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing it's, I'm guessing it's changed over time. I'm, I'm, I, God, I hope it's changed over time. I hope. It has. I think it's definitely changed. I don't know that it's, lesser i think that it's very different right um and so i think i think all systems of oppression have just like people have to learn different ways to survive and thrive in society you know systems structural systems also develop um unique ways to survive and thrive you know with with the times and so um i think it is different, but I also think that I don't wouldn't necessarily say that it's better. You know, there's been studies that show that um, the United States is more segregated now than it was pre-desegregation. Um, yeah, that the schools are more segregated, that the our communities and neighborhoods are are more segregated, um, and so I I don't think that it's I think it's just different the way that it shows up. And I think part of that is that, you know, the American um, school system has done a poor job of giving people a breadth of uh, in-depth knowledge about our histories, kind of our, you know, our nation's history. So when you say that to the average American, they say, well, how can that be? Because, you know, unfortunately schools don't teach them about redlining. So they don't under have an understanding about how um, mortgages and um, banks, you know, approval of different people is also a structural system that has kept our communities um, from integrating, from truly integrating. Um, and how that system is, you know, actually hurt us because while people may not be directly um, hold biases against people who are different from them, a lack of intimacy with people who are different from you will inherently um, mean that the stories that you form about different cohorts will be formulated from media and things that you are fed. And um, in our society in America, uh, those stories are generally led by um, people who have strong biases against marginalized people, whether that be women, people of color, um, the queer community. So um, yeah, I think, I, think that's, I think that's kind of where we're at. And I think 
one of the things that I try to do is demystify it so that it doesn't seem so overwhelming for people. Um, so that people, you know, a lot of my followers until I talked about it, didn't know what the great migration was. They didn't know, they had never heard of it. Um, many of them didn't know why, how important the industrial revolution was and to, to how we think about work. Um, there wasn't a timestamp. You didn't clock in and clock out before the industrial revolution. What did that do for the, how people think of a work day? Um, most people didn't know that like adolescence is a new thing. It's very, very new. The idea that children aren't a part of, of the labor structure of your household is a new idea. Um, and so, what does that mean when that's a new idea and then suddenly we live in a world where we think that children should have no type of um ability to have a say in how our world moves when they ultimately will be the people who have to live in the world we create so it's it's um i think it, i try to break it down and nibble in pieces and i try to do it by focusing on systems that are related to the food and beverage industry you know um yeah Fucking hell! I mean, honestly, um, I mean, I, 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 I'd obviously heard of the Great Migration. Obviously, I'd, I had heard of the Great Migration. I had never, I'd never seen the racism inherent in financial structures like mortgages before. I, 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 I obviously, I'm acutely aware that people of color are way, way disadvantaged financially compared to other people. I assume that was a job, a work thing. I assume that was to do yeah. with opportunity i hadn't ever thought about it as a that there was racism in the way that we accumulate wealth i hadn't ever seen that so you know a lot of the things that people don't realize is a lot of this isn't just about i think most people in america uh, struggle with racism because they see racism only as an interpersonal thing and it's difficult for them when we talk about systemic and structural for them to understand exactly what that means and primarily going back to our education system because we don't talk about legislation right and so one of the things that i've been talking to people about is in america the tipping structure is a byproduct of 1865 labor laws 1865 labor laws were passed in response to the Civil War. They knew that there were going to be now these free former slaves, black former slaves who were now going to be free people, and they wanted to mitigate their ability to amass wealth. One of the ways to do that was to place legislation limits on how people could be paid. And so there was a ton of domestic workers and hospitality workers that many, most, most states passed legislation to make sure that they could only be paid by tips. You see, I, I find, I mean, I, I puzzled for ages um, on the whole tipping culture in America because I just didn't understand it. And then, I, and then I Googled it and then I dug a bit deeper and I had no idea of its direct relationship to, to, the, to the freedom of slaves and the, and the removal of the ability of people of color to earn money. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrifying. Okay. So when you, you think about that, me on this. When you think about that, it makes a lot of sense why so many other systems don't bang. And that's what I tell people. I'm like, you know, if there's an issue, you can generally trace it back to a legislative issue, right? Um, and The Color of Law, which is a great book by Richard Rothfuss, he really delves into how um, redlining, tax laws, mortgages, all of these things have really kept our community segregated, but also created a structural system where Black people um, and other people of color 
um, because it's not just about black people, it's also about making sure that um, communities of color don't integrate too. So redlining isn't just about structurally oppressing black people, it's also about making sure that communities, uh, community, Hispanic and uh, Latin communities don't integrate with black communities or Asian communities don't integrate with one another, right? Because then you have an issue with if they create solidarity, then you have even more of a problem. So um, I think that's, yeah, yeah. I think people don't realize that, you know, it's imperative that we also understand where things come from um, historically from a legislative standpoint. That's terrifying. Look, we're going to come back to this in a minute, right? Because it's too important not to. But tell me about growing up. Tell me what your childhood was like. Oh, God. Um, well, uh, I had a very interesting childhood. Um, I lived a lot of different Honestly, Bloomington, Illinois, Chicago, Illinois, um, Memphis, Tennessee. I moved, we, we moved quite a bit and not because I, you know, my dad's military, my mom wasn't, but my mom was a military brat. And so for her, I just think it was very easy to not feel beholden to a space. Um, and so when she was like, okay, we're done. This is, I'm over this. We moved. Um, uh, so I grew up a little bit of everywhere and then, um, basically, you know, I wasn't, I was, a, I was always a smart kid. Um, I was always interested in read. I was a curious kid, um, which may surprise people. I, or not, I also got in a lot of trouble as a kid, um, in different parts of my life. Um, I have been to juvie. Um, I have been to alternative. Uh, juvenile correction it's like kitty jail in america um and except for it's it's still terrifying like jail um and uh you know i went to alternative school um and had to actually advocate to get back into the honors program um why, why did you go to alternative school i got kicked out of traditional school for it's a it's a it's a long story but essentially, i don't need to know why but I, okay so but I, it was okay. essentially i was accused actually no it's a good point to just kind of show like someone like me who people are like oh my god look at ashton um but just to show them how like seriously how systemic issues are in america um i was in high school and i didn't realize it but i had a i picked up an old purse and there was a pocket knife in it which I lived in Memphis, Tennessee, and I had gotten in trouble because I was selling contraband on school. So I basically had, I was a young entrepreneur and I had decided to sell chips, um, pencils, paper, Motrin, pads, tampons. If you needed it, I had it, you could buy it from me at a very discounted price, right? And the school football coach had it out. I, I want to buy some already, right? You've already, like, just the way you said that, I'm like, yes, uh, what have you got? I'm buying. Yeah, so my dad gave me my first $200 to start my business. And I was making about $200 a week, selling, like, honey buns and pencils and papers and tampons and things of that nature. And um, also Motron. And so when they came, I, you know, this football coach had it out for me. He wanted to catch me. They searched through all my stuff and in my bag, they found Motron and a pocket knife. Now, obviously I don't have a history of being a violent kid, but it's a zero tolerance policy. 
So they, you know, I'm arrested. They take me out of school in handcuffs. Um, I spent a few days in jail, uh, more than a few days in jail. And um, then I am kicked out of school and put into alternative school. Um, and I have to go through basically the public school board trial, um, where basically this judge who thankfully um, looks at my grades, look at my hands, like I, you know, you've been in a little bit of trouble, but nothing, you know, basically they were trying, they were originally going to try to charge me for selling drugs like Motrim to underage, to basically underage people. So I like, they were trying to charge me with that and a weapon, which are both felonies. Um, and I, the judge took it down to a misdemeanor and I had to spend the rest of the school year in alternative school. And then I had to reapply to get into the honors program. What did your parents say? I mean, my dad was, at the time I was living with my dad, so my parents have never been married. So um, my dad was, I was living with my dad who was a single parent as well. And um, my dad was also in training to go back to um, Kuwait. Uh, he was active duty. You know, he wasn't happy at all, um, but he took it a lot better than my mom did. I mean, for my dad, I think he's just like, you're a child and you're supposed to make mistakes if we don't provide a safety net for you to like learn hard things right now, then you're just gonna have to learn those hard lessons as adults and the consequences are a lot worse. Um, and I think my dad also just realized that like I was the type of person who was like, he needs to has this consequence she has to go to alternative school and now she will have to figure out how to advocate to get herself back into the honors program um and you know my mom kind of my mom was not happy my mom was furious um did you blame your dad of course she did <laughs> of course she did and you know like of course she was just like you know this would never have happened under me this would have never um but i think you know, I think it was, I'm, I'm not ashamed of that. And I'm, I'm actually really happy that I went through it. I think that plus many other things throughout my childhood would really radicalize and galvanize me to be, realize how, you know, I watched people who were a different race than me get in trouble all the time and never be let out of school in handcuffs. Right. And, but I was let out. So it was, it, it really taught me that like, you know, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how well you perform. It doesn't matter that like there, there is a different um, set of rules that you're going to be judged by. Um, and so, yeah. That's incredible. What were you listening to? What, t tell, me, tell, me, tell me about the smells of your childhood. What, what's the strongest smell, the strongest flavor from your childhood? Strongest flavors. Oh, God. Um, hmm. In Memphis, it would definitely be smoked meat because my dad always smoked meat so it would probably be a fried bologna sandwich because my dad was smoked bologna and we would have fried bologna sandwiches and that was like my favorite thing in the whole wide world and caramel cake yeah that was like another thing i think from chicago oh that's so hard i don't know there's so many things but i would say music was like house music was really big in my life music in general was really big um my dad's father was a jazz musician yeah. Um, and I played the clarinet, uh, jazz musician in Memphis, and I played the clarinet 
for eight and a half, almost nine years. Um, and me and my cousin taught each other how to play the flute. I was actually trying to figure out, I was actually starting to play the saxophone. Um, so music was a big part of my life. Um, my mom loved music. Um, we, I listened to a lot of house music, a lot of neo soul, a lot of funk. Um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, hip hop was definitely a big part. I grew up in the age of like Kanye West before he became the Kanye West we now knew. He was from Chicago. We all loved him. Um, you know, yeah, I, you know, that, those were the sounds of my child, do or die, twist the, now I'm throwing out like very old school. Do songs. it, no, I want, I, well, people. So people may not know this, but this, you know, this was the time, you know, Lil Wayne was coming up. This is before he had reached mass appeal and other than, you know, cash money, people didn't really know Lil Wayne as like a solo rap artist, but like I did as someone who grew up in Memphis and has, you know, has roots down in, in the South. So yeah, all of this, all of this, these were all the things that were, college was an interesting experience. I lived abroad for part of it, lived in Paris um how did you yeah. how did you enjoy that i loved it i loved it i have a long-standing lo uh love affair with uh paris i went there for the first time when i was 12 um and went back again in high school and kind of you know just have had this ongoing relationship with it it's actually one of the things that influenced me to be a sommelier um so yeah so so as a kid you were at school, you were in alternative school. You then went into, did you go to university? Did you go to? Mm -hmm. I went to University of Chicago. What did you study? Uh, I studied, well, I got a degree in sociology, but I studied sociology and econ. I didn't do my final project for econ. And, and where did you go? What did you do after that? What was your first job? Um, well, I had been working since the age of 15. I got my first full-time job at like 16 years old. Um, and so I worked all throughout college and I actually worked in a combination of working in like hospitality spaces, coffee shops, uh, restaurants, bars, and also, um, retail. So, um, when I graduated, I graduated in 2010, we were in the middle of a very bad recession. I don't know if you remember that. Um, but I ended up working for a not-for-profit, um, which, before I graduated, I helped. I was a part of the team that helped start something, which was an art center that was built on the University of Chicago campus. I helped create one of the starting programs called the U Chicago Art Pass, which is actually still in existence. It allows University of Chicago undergraduate and graduate students at all levels to go to art and cultural spaces at a discounted price. Um, so they get into the Art Institute, the MCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art, Gene Sisko Film Institute, um, at either for free or for very low prices. Um, and there was something like when I started it, there was like 128 partners. Um, and now I think there might be over like 300. So that was kind of what I did in school. And then after I graduated, I ended up continuing to work for the University of Chicago and work for one of their not-for-profits not kind of creating programming. Um, and then I 
really did not enjoy that job. <laughs> um, and I what, ended up, Why not? What, what was wrong with that job? What, not what was wrong with it. What, what was it that didn't suit you? I think what I really learned, and this is something that I've like continued has come back to me, is that like um, I don't have a lot of patience for hierarchical systems that um, are more interested in keeping people in their place than they are in trying to get the job or the role done. Yeah. And um, I also don't like spaces that lack accountability, specifically for leadership. Um, and I just felt like I worked for someone who constantly blamed other people for the issues within our thing, but never turned the mirror on themselves for like why things were structurally wrong. I also, I also was young and didn't really believe in like, because you're my boss, I shouldn't be able to say that like, what you did was wrong. I still don't believe in it, but I like definitely didn't believe in that when I was younger. Um, and I definitely didn't have a lot of tact. Um, so I, yeah, so I left that job. I ended up kind of falling back into retail. Um, I ended up running a denim store off of Michigan Avenue. Um, yeah, but I had worked for a lot of different like high-end retail spaces. Um, a lot of my friends were fashion designers and also worked in retail and things of that. So, um, but through working in that, I decided to pick up a part-time job as a cocktail waitress again. And then through that job, uh, the owner ended up opening up another place and it was like more swanky, higher end. And he like brought me over to like work there. And it was focused a lot on whiskey and things. It was kind of like, you know, when all of the bars started coming about, they were all focused on like being these like old school gentlemen's club, you know, cigar like type yes. places. So it was like one of those type of places. And, but it, I learned a lot, right? Like I was able to like do a ton of, um, I get a ton of education on spirits. Um, and then at that point I had already had one certification in wine and I chose to get my second one um, and started also working part-time at a wine store. And then, you know, I basically after that, it's just like every job I had, someone recommended me for a job and then ended up working at a place called Pops for Champagne and um, worked there for three and a half years. And that was, that's like a Chicago institution, but was able from the beverage director, Kay Cooper, to learn a ton about champagne, but also not just champagne, Armagnac, Cognac, Sherry. Um, yeah. What, what, what was it about that world that appealed to you? Was it, was it the flavors, the experimentation? Was it the science? Was it the art? Was it the... Was it was, it I think it was all of it. It was all of it. I think it was, I, one of the things that I loved about wine is that there was something always to learn. No matter how much you knew, there was always going to be something else to learn. Um, I love the connection to the land and learning about the process, how important the land was in, into understanding what you had in the bottle. Um, I loved service. I mean, I didn't think it at that point, but you know, I was an educator. My favorite thing was getting and helping and growing people's palates and getting them to try new things um, or introducing them to things that maybe they wouldn't have thought, gaining their trust. Um, I'm actually still friends with some of my regulars, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, they've kind of seen me evolve and grow up over the years. Um, 
um, yeah, it was the flavors. I mean, I started off drinking dark liquor, like when I started drinking. Um, I got, I tried to drink vodka and gin when I was in sick. And so I went to drinking the things that I had seen my grandmother, my grandmother, my grandfather, my, my parent, my mother drink. My father didn't really drink that much. Um, and so I started off drinking cognacs and whiskeys and scotch. So, um, tell me you know, about your grandparents. Tell me that that's a, that's great that you you leapfrogged your parents' drinking habits and drank what your grandparents drank. So my grandfather actually has been a bartender pretty much my ent entire life. My mom's father, um, and so both of my grandfathers have been in the nightlife world, I would say. But my grandfather, you know, has run dive bars in Philly for years, for years and years and years, um, and. He drank Johnny Walker Blue, so blended Scotch wow. whiskey, um, or Johnny Walker Black. And my grandmother uh, drank Jack and Coke. That was what my step grandmother drank. My grandmother um, likes Armagnac. Um, and so you and know, what spirit drinkers, but 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 a longer drink. So my 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 grandmother will drink Armagnac neat. She likes just a little bit of Armagnac neat. She doesn't drink a lot, but she likes wine and she'll drink a little Armagnac neat. My step-grandmother, yeah, she's a Jack and Coke type of woman, like always Jack and Coke, Jack and Coke. Um, and my grandfather, you know, he, he can drink, he can drink everything. He is a power, like he can drink everything. He's been in this game for a long time, but he, he really loves um, scotch. It's amazing. And um, when we work together, for, just for the listener, um, I, I met Ashton, I'll say this in the introduction actually, but I met, I met Ashton in, um, in LA at an event and then had a project that needed bartenders and I just thought, I, that have, was so fun. I have to have her there. Yeah, well, we'll, hopefully stuff will happen with that still. But Ashton's, when Ashton was making drinks for us to try, every single drink, it wasn't about the drink, it, it was about the story, it was about the senses, it was about, it was about the, the sense of place, the, it, the time, the season, the fruit. And, and you just, you bought drinks to life with poetry. And I don't, do you know you do that? Do you know you can do that? Um, I mean, I, I get, no, I guess I never really thought about it. I guess that's like, for me, I'm always just like, what's the story? What's the thing that's bringing you here? Well, you did it with peach tea. Or tea that you make on the yeah, set. Yeah, yeah, that. Drink. The whole room, like we were sat in Bermondsey in London, in South London, in a world that feels so distant from where we are now, and you had you had twenty people sat there listening to every single breath you made, every word that you said, and every one of us wanted to go to Georgia to drink peach tea, and I don't know whether you have a power, Ashton, that is. Mm -hmm that is in narrative, that it, you have a poetry of purpose that uh, you carry very lightly. You, you, you don't slam it into people. We, 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 we are absolutely transfixed by your words. And I, I don't know whether you know that, but it's, it's such, such a- Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I think, you know, I live in books. I, I tell people all the time, books saved my life. Like, Totally. 
would not be Ashton Berry, would not be here, might be a very different person if I didn't always have books. And I just think that um, storytelling is so powerful, right? It's, it's just so powerful. And before we had the internet and before we had all these different forms of documentation, word of mouth and storytelling was how we remembered things. It's how we remembered recipes. It's how, it's so many things. And I was lucky enough to um, be raised partially by my great grandmother in my beginning years. And so most of the things that I remember, you know, she, she, she just passed. So I'm really grateful. She's been, she was around my, mo mo you know, my life. That is such a thing that like most people don't get to have. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I get a lot from her. And, but I remember, you know, so much of our elders, everything that they held was in the way that they communicated, whether it was through song, whether it was through And um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I think the stories make the thing. I think it's cool to make somebody something amazing, create something amazing. I think it's, it brings memories and even more in depth and connection when we can connect it to a story. So how, so how did you, so you started working in bars, you were this, you knew your wine, you were a sommelier, you, you would clearly understand flavor. You, you're an amazing ability to pull flavors together and create a drink that is so rounded and yet surprises, yeah? Um, what did you do next? Where did you go next? Um, so a lot of this is happening simultaneously. So let's see, let's see, let's see. So while I kind of skipped down the part, but so while I'm in college and like even before college, I'm my mom was a sexual educator. So I'm very much also in this world of like organizing and activism by way of my mom, right? So I'm like constantly being influenced in this way. And so through college, I'm also like really starting to get real skill sets. I'm volunteering with the um, night bus, right? So needle exchange, um, HIV AIDS testing, things of this nature. Um, I'm getting bystander training to be a first responder for survivors. All of these things are kind of all happening at the same time um right before graduate or is it right after sometime around that i i go and i get transformative justice mediation training um and i see this as like really after hearing a woman speak and her talking about her work i see this as really as a skill that everybody should kind of know specifically in not-for-profit work um i don't really use it much and I'm not at the point yet where I'm connecting all of the dots through how the work that I've done thus far is connected to the work that I'm about to get into. I kind of go into this, I go into this role world of like escapism. So I really, you know, this sounds crazy, but I move to a different part of Chicago. I break up with a boyfriend that I've been with for four and a half years. He breaks up with me actually. And it just like devastates my world. I'm like, I don't see it coming. I'm like, what's happening, blah, blah. At the same time, I, I quit my job. And so I lean into basically completely remaking myself. Uh, I moved to another part of Chicago where none of my friends live. I uh, quit my retail job and like full-time lean into the hospitality industry. And that just kind of becomes my world for four years. And I create 
this Ashton Berry that is very, still Ashton Berry, but very different in terms of how people kind of know her. Um, and then I get to this point where all of the frustrations that I had before, I'm seeing now. Um, and I hit this glass ceiling and I noticed the, you know, I just started, I start noticing all of the things that I noticed before, the um, not listening to women, not hearing women, women not being afforded the opportunity to get in certain positions. Um, you know, I start seeing and I start being true to myself. I start being very, very vocal about it. Um, I hit a mark in Chicago where I just can't deal with it anymore. And I am going between moving to Seattle, New Orleans, and Vancouver. So the three places I'm considering moving. And Vancouver, you know, getting a, like getting a um, visa is really difficult. So, you know, and everybody's like, don't move to New Orleans, you'll ruin your wine career. So I decided to move to Seattle. I lived there, it's the shortest amount of time I've ever lived in a place. I lived there for nine months and it pushes me to become vocal in a way that I've never had to be vocal. And what I mean by that is it pushes me past just being angry, right? Like I, it's no longer for me to just scream into the ether, this is bullshit, this isn't right, why is this happening? It forces me to start creating language or bringing in language from my past life into the hospitality world so that people can understand where my anger is coming from. Um, and living in Seattle was like death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, it was really microaggressive, right? Um, and I was told by a lot of people to basically just assimilate. And I was like, but do you see how that's violent? Do you see how only a certain type of person can live here and thrive here, how violent that is? Um, and they couldn't, right? And they also couldn't hear me. And, you know, and so I moved because even if you can survive somewhere, I, you know, I, you know, I truly believe this. And my, my grandmother's, my great grandmother said something to me, something like, like this. Just be, you know, there's some plants that can grow no matter where you put them, no matter what soil, but they'll only thrive in certain places. And, you know, I was just kind of like, why am I struggling here to, to prove what to who, right? And so I left and I moved to New Orleans and it was like a breath of fresh air. And it also put me in this space where I realized that there was no place I was going to live on the globe where I was going to escape the structural issues that were bothering me every day. So I was either going to have to learn how to survive within them or I was going to have to find a way to navigate and advocate for things to be different. And you chose? You know, I think it's pretty clear. I chose, you know, to, uh, you know, I'm not very good about just taking it on the chin. So I, uh, you know, I chose to start figuring out how to advocate. And one of the ways that I did that was going back to that person I had kind of put away, which was the Ashton Berry of college, the Ashton Berry um, in those years, the Ashton Berry after college, who really was concerned and focused on systems and focused on research and focused on education. And, you know, I just slowly, without even consciously realizing, started integrating all of those things back into my world. 
And can you can you? I mean, I'm and I'm really and I'm really glad you did. Right? You you are um, incredibly. You have a power and a force that is um, really needed, like <clears throat> overdue. Okay. Um, oh, thank you. No, I mean it. I genuinely, you're you're a really inspiring person. The first time I met you, I was like, "Fuck! I just have to use this. I have to find a way of working with this woman. I have to do it." And Nicola feels the same. We're just like, Nicola's so sweet. She is. No, I'm very lucky. Um, are you able to see your life in different... The way you described you digging out the old Ashton Berry, almost like another character. Are you able to see yourself in, 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 in terms of distinct personalities and distinct periods? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've lived like seven lives. I've been so many different people. I think if you went back, and I, and I think some of that is a byproduct of moving around so much as a kid, right? I would, well, it was, you know, some people are like, wasn't that difficult always going to a new store, school and having to learn new people? Yeah, but it was also freeing in some ways because if there were things I didn't like about how I had to navigate in my school before, in my life before, I could change it. Yeah. I could use this different environment and I can change it right? The people here don't know the Ashton before. I can change. Who do I want Ashton to be now? And I've always had something that I think is a superpower, which is I have always had this ability to shed who I was and totally lean into my next iteration with no excuses. I do not owe anybody um, a hold on my past. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I can see distinctly. There are some very, I've, I've always been me, but there's some very distinct periods of Ashton Berry and people who have known me for a long time are like you're still you but they're like but you're you you they can see the growth right they can see the growth um see, 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 see that I get right so I can see I, I have such more admiration for someone who can and in the UK we're really bad at allowing people to be someone different allowing people to move on we like them where they were and they can fucking well get back there and get small again because because we like that, and I've had this a lot. Mm -hmm. but I love the way you describe it, almost like a snake that's become too big for its skin, and, and, it, and it has to slough that and get, and get rid of that and, and, and move on, and that is, that is a massive skill, and, and, that, and that's a plant that can survive anywhere. But yeah, I mean, I think it can survive anywhere, but also it, it has the ability to harness the support it needs to thrive anywhere, yeah. right? You know, by allowing yourself to let go of things, we lean into the capability to have opportunity for new things, right? And so I think so often when we are, but there also is a grieving process in this, which is something that like, I don't think I realized until about two and a half years ago. And when I was in, a, I didn't realize that's what it was, but I was in a severe, um, had, I was in a severe pattern of grief. Right. And, and part of that grief is that also you have to grieve the knowledge that you will be leaving things behind. Things that, you, that may have brought you pleasure or happiness or may have been coping mechanisms, but no longer serve you. And so you do have to almost grieve this iteration of you that no longer can be um, in existence. That doesn't mean you're not existence, but this version of you, you must grieve right? In order to truly lean in. And I think um, that was probably one of the biggest jumps I made was when I was like, 
one, everybody won't be coming on coming with you at this journey. That doesn't mean that your journeys won't meet again. It doesn't mean you won't see each other again, but everybody cannot grow at this same rate as everybody else. So we will sometimes have to leave one another and reconvene at a different time. Um, and so you have to grieve that, you know, it is a loss. You have to grieve those things. There's a distance that it creates with some people, with some things in your life. And um, you also have to be able to do it without putting shame or blame on why that distant existence has been created, which is a hard thing, which was probably one of my hardest lessons over the last two years is getting past the blaming of people not being able to grow with you at the rate you are and owning that, um, you know, something I talked about the other day, responsibility versus accountability, right? Um, we can only hold ourselves accountable. Accountability is only something that we can hold and it requires an instant amount of trust. And so when we choose to blame people for their inability to join us at the place that we are, we aren't being accountable or empathetic that the process is different for people, right? And so, um, yeah, that's to go too deep. You've helped me more than you know there, actually, because that I've been through this recently, that the grieving process of, people moving at different speeds or in different trajectories. That's, that's something real that I feel um, quite strongly right now, actually. Um, so that's, that, 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 that's, incredi that's incredibly um, uh, insightful, truly insightful. And, and right now you are, you are an a, a all-star bartender. You get invited all around the world to do crazy things. Your profile's rising. That's amazing. Yeah. What are you going to do next, Ashton? Oh, my God. Oh, oof. I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, you know, I want to, there's a couple of things I want. And I'm going to try to bring them into existence. Um, not try, I'm going to bring them into existence. We'll see when they happen. Um, I've decided that I am going to go back to school. Um, and that I would like to get a PhD in integrative neuroscience. Um, and really apply that to the hospitality world um, with the hopes of one day having a research institute for the hospitality world globally, right? Um, where we do research and that we can name the things that are going on in the industry, where we can have these incredibly depth of conversations about the work that we do. Um, and so that's the long-term life goal, life work. Immediately, you know, um, my followers have really been telling me that they want me to do more media. They want to see me on the show. They want to see me on the podcast. They want to see something. Yeah. And so what I'm at this point now is I really want to integrate more parts of me, if that makes sense. Um, a lot of people know me as Ashton activist, or some people know me as Ashton sommelier bartender. And I'd really like to close in and integrate those more, um, so that they fluidly just kind of go back and forth. And so I think that's what's next, but how that shows up, I'm not exactly sure. I, I'm still figuring that out, but. Um, well, you're gonna do it though, like a fucking hell. I mean, I've got goosebumps hearing you talk of the size and the scale and the intent of your dreams. And, and actually, I don't think they're dreams with you. I don't, you're just gonna go, that institute's gonna happen. Right? You're gonna go back to school. Damn. Um, Tell me about the activism. We'll finish on the activism. Tell me, tell me uh, the good things and the bad things about that work. 
I think, you know, I think my activism is, you know, I try to tell people because I think uh, what happened when I started really doing activist work in this industry is person, a specialist. And I, it took me a minute to kind of integrate and be like, I'm, they're not separate things. These things work together, right? Um, my activism is, you know, I'm grateful. Not everybody gets to do the work that they love and also be this vocal about so many things. You know, I make people uncomfortable. Um, you know, I try to, and I think Simon Ford actually said this one time, is uh, he's like, you know, being introduced to you is like having someone smack you and then hug you, right? Because <laughs> just seeing like, you needed that wake up call, but it's okay, it's all right. Like, I'm, all, I'm here for you. Um, uh, and so I, I'm, I'm grateful for it. And, and what I love about it is how much hungry, I see how hungry people are. Like people want this education, you know, it shouldn't just be for leaders. I do a lot of leadership trainings, but the tools that I'm teaching shouldn't just be for leaders. Everybody should have access to them. And the things that I'm teaching while I talk about equity um, in terms of gender equity, racial equity. Um, and I talked about intersectionality and the, and the intersection of identity politics. Really what I'm trying to get people to get to the heart of is stop compartmentalizing yourself to be in spaces. Stop compartmentalizing yourself to be in this industry, right? We need people to show up as their whole selves. So one, we can actually address the issues that we have head on as a collective and create support systems to change it. But two, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think too is like we, um, we, we also want to do that because we, when people bring their full selves, they're just so much more joyful. They're so much more happy and, um, we provide a greater experience, right? So, um, I would, I, I'm interested in how we internalize hospitality, not as an outward expression to our guests, but as an inward um, care system for the people who are within it. Oh, totally. Look, you know, you, 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 you have a power, you're a force. That, that description, being sat around the face and then giving a hug, that's about right. That's, <laughs> that's brilliant. Uh, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Like the work that you've got to do and I can't do that work. I'm a white, middle-class, middle-aged man of privilege. I, I don't know. I don't have the fight that you have had. I don't know. I don't know what it's like. All, all I can do is learn, right? And there are many millions of us that need to learn. We just, we just don't know. And, and, and it's not in everyone's interest to find out, but they need to know, right? That you, you've, got a, you've got a massive... Yeah, and I think there's different ways for people to find out. Like, I think some people, when they first hear about me, they're like, oh, well, her work's not for me, or um, that, you know, she will think this of me. And really, the point of my work is to say that, like, we are a, this, you know, humans are this a beautiful um, culmination of their past and their present, right? And so that's all I'm trying to get people to understand is that, like, the historical things that have manifested you into existence, right, literally and figuratively, um, they matter because not because you are accountable for people's past actions or people's past, what the way that they've done, but because they have brought you here. And so it's important to remember that and how we relate to each other now because that present occupant 
occupation of that space um, is what allows us to lean in to create a future where we see our, our individual role in healing ourselves as a way to collectively help others. I, do you know what? There's so much in there. Oh, that last sentence. I, I, I think so many people don't see their own role in healing themselves, N not as a disenfranchised or a marginalized group, just as souls, just as people. Yeah. That, that, I mean, it, this is this is healing work. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think that all equity workers agree with me in that. But I truly do believe this. I do not think that you can do this work from a place of um, from a place of moving forward, right? Um, without considering the healing that needs to be done. Like it requires a lot of self-healing. It requires a lot of um, holding of space for other to heal. And that doesn't mean that that doesn't include anger or disappointment or upset or anything like that. Like it includes a range of feelings in that. Um, but yeah, and I'm just trying to get us to the point where we can have more nuanced conversations with the beverage and bar world. Right, um, so that we can do that healing work within our own systems. Totally. <laughs> do you, um, couple to finish off. Do you, do you like yourself? I do. Good. I'm not always happy with myself. Sure, they're very different things. Yeah, right. I'm not always proud with my proud of myself or my behavior, but I, I like myself very much. That's fantastic. And um, tell me. Just to finish off, really, your great grandmother, what would she think of where you are now? Oh, um, she was proud. Um, she was very, very proud. I think there are some things that, like, you know, my nose ring. I love uh, my nose ring. Uh, that she would be like, why did you put that in your face? Um, I think there's something she wouldn't quite love. Um, she definitely wouldn't love how much I cuss, but she was a little bit of a hellraiser back in her day too. So I think she, you know she she appreciated. Um, she'd be proud. I think most most importantly, what she'd be proud is that I lived my life for me. Um, which she, she told me very many times that she was proud that she was like, you know, it doesn't matter what other people think of your life. Um, you live in it for you. And so she was very, very proud of that. And I think in general, while all of my family doesn't get me, I'm a little bit of the, um, the different one. Uh, I think that they all admire the fact that I live my life by my rules. I l Ashton, I love you. You're brilliant. And that's a perfect ending. That is absolutely wonderful. Th thank you. You are going to... Wow. Ashton just shines and she's just one of the most amazing people I've ever met. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. And um, if you follow her on Instagram, um, it's one of the best ways to learn. You know, it's no excuse, but for years we didn't know what we didn't know. Now we do. Now we know what we didn't know. And now we've got to find out. 
Now, we've got to work stuff through. And if you know this stuff already, if you're a person of colour, then I'm not, I'm not talking to you. you. You know this stuff. If you're not, then we've we got to find out and we've got to sort this stuff out. There's lots to think about um, at the moment and there's lots to think about after that, after that podcast. Um, it, it was genuinely one of the most engaging and enlivening conversations I've ever had. And um, I'm going to stay friends with Ashton forever. She is such a, 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 a brilliant person. And, um, and, you know, let's get to her job as a bartender. She makes amazing drinks. When I worked with her, um, it was for a, a, a contract with a client of mine, and we were playing with drinks, and, and we had to play with flavours, and we got the bartenders to introduce the flavours, and, and they're, all, they're all amazing. I mean, one, one thing I've learned working with bartenders is they genuinely um, are amazing people who who are creative, they're, they're counsellors, they're, they're coaches, they're, they're, they're magicians, they're chemists, they're artists, they're, 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 they DJ with flavour. And everyone explained what they did brilliantly and I wanted to drink all of the drinks. But the way Ashton spoke about things, the way every single thing was related to, to something she lived through, some memory of hers, the the evocation the evocativeness of the way she described things set her set her above and and beyond what we needed and um i i wait with bated breath to see what she does next where she goes and how successful she's going to be so hopefully you you enjoyed that and um hopefully it's given you food for thought and um, if you've got any feedback, any comments, then please um, email me, mark at thisisape.co.uk. Ash Ashton on um, Instagram is The Collectress. Um, I'm at Mark Shaler on Instagram. Feel free to engage there as well. And um, if, you, if you have someone in mind that you think would be great for this podcast, then please, please get in touch. If you think you'd be great for this podcast, then please please get in touch and I really appreciate your time. There are millions of podcasts that you could listen to. We've got more hours of podcasts than we're ever going to live and I really appreciate the fact that you've chosen to click on this one. Thank you.